0: official, we're now living in a recession. The numbers just came out the other day. We have two quarters consecutive of negative growth. The Bureau of Economic Analysis says that U.S. GDP fell by an annualized rate of nine-tenths of one percent. That's just under one percent in the second quarter. But this comes on the heel of a contraction of 1.6% in the first quarter. So between the two quarters, we have a considerable reduction. Now, for years, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth have been the common rule of thumb in terms of defining a recessions. Although, it to be true, uh, in the past, recessions in this country are usually officially declared by committees of economists at the National Bureau of Economic Research. They use a broader definition than the two-quarter rule. But I think it's a fair bet to say that by any standard you care to name, except the standard that the White House is using, we're in a recession. When you have negative growth, when you have gas prices out of control, when you have inflation that's approaching double digits, when you have real wages not increasing at all or absolutely contracting, you have a serious economic situation. And the only difference, uh, as the saying used to go back during the Carter years, between a recession and a depression at this point, is who's out of a job. If your friend's out of a job and you're working, you're in a recession. If you're out of a job and your friend is working, you're in a depression. Well, Donald Trump (coughs) is warning that a depression is just around the corner unless radical change is made. Now, I don't know how radical a change is going to come since the only election we have coming up is um, the congressional elections, Uh, but uh, we will soon see. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the program. This is the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store, or the iTunes App Store, and simply search out the Jamie Dury Show, subscribe, or you can download the free Podbean app at either one of those locations if you wish to use a third-party podcast aggregator app. That is our hosting service. It's an excellent app, And you can listen to the show by subscribing that way. Whichever way you decide to listen, you can leave comments, leave reviews. We really need both. And we need them in abundance of a positive nature. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us. And that way the show will grow. We'll reach more people. And we'll be able to bring you more offerings going forward in the future. So, back to this recession business. You know, the Biden administration is very good at spin. These Democrats, they love to spin. And the, the real sad part, the real tragedy is they believe their own nonsense. They're talking about the precipitous drop in gas prices. They fail to mention that the gas prices only dropped after having <coughs> reached an unbelievable high, an all time high in this country. Remember, we're talking about gas that was only $2 a gallon when Trump left office. And within a year, gas was pushing $6 a gallon. Now that it's down to four twenty-nine a gallon, or here in New York, uh, the Democrats are acting like we should be grateful. Grateful for what? For what? $1.75 decrease in the price of gasoline from $6? That is what we should be grateful for? You haven't failed to realize that most of us are ungrateful and pissed off at the $2.25 rise we got in gas prices from what they had been when Donald Trump was president. And it isn't hard to figure out why. We were labor independent under Trump. We were exploring new sources of energy. We became a net exporter of energy instead of a net importer. This had a great effect not only on our economy, but this had a great effect on world order. Russia, the source of much angst, on the part of many people now, with their invasion of Ukraine. It may have a first-class military, but it's a third-world dump. Yes, I know Moscow is a pretty city, but the country as a whole is a third-world country with a first-rate military. But even that first-rate military isn't doing so well in Ukraine. But it has no real diversified economy. Russia, at the end of the day, is a giant gas station. By lowering the price of gas, he lowered the amount of disposable income that Vladimir Putin had to spend on these wars of liberation. I call them wars of reacquisition, because this man is trying to reconstitute the old Soviet Union. So again, I ask, what was so bad about Donald Trump? He kept that little Korean thug in line. He had the Chinese in line. He beat them to death on that trade deal. And he kept Putin in line. Putin invaded countries under Bush. He invaded countries under Obama. He didn't go anywhere under Trump. As soon as Sleepy Joe walked in, all of a sudden he's invading Ukraine. And this is not to be discounted, this uh, price of gasoline. Gasoline, whether people want to realize it or not, oil is the lifeblood of the economy in the Western world. Yes, I know everybody wants green energy. I'm sure we would all like green energy if green energy were viable. It is not viable under the current state of affairs, and it's not viable for several reasons. I want to talk today a little about this nexus between the economy and energy. Everybody wants to go with these electric cars. They're trying to force electric cars down your throat. Well, first of all, electric cars are no panacea, and they're not all that clean, despite what you've been led to believe. The disposal risks and costs associated with those batteries, the environmental impact of the disposal of those batteries is far greater than the environmental impact of, let's say, a Humvee with its exhaust fumes on the environment. Secondly, that's just the battery itself. Secondly, when you plug an electric charger into a wall, it isn't this magical receptacle that produces electricity without any combustible fuel on the other end. There's only so many ways you can produce electricity. By and large, the biggest way to produce electricity in this country has been through fossil-fueled power plants, We used to use a lot of coal plants, oil-fired plants, coal especially, because coal was abundant here. But we have been able to reduce greenhouse gases in the United States, not because we've moved away from fossil fuels per se. We've gone toward burning more natural gas. Natural gas burns much cleaner than uh, coal or oil. Yes, it would be considered a fossil fuel, but the byproduct of burning natural gas is simply CO2 and water vapor. Oh, but CO2. Look, CO2 is not a culprit. CO2 is a byproduct of what we exhale every day. It's a byproduct of living. Livestock produces it. We produce it. We produce CO2. Fortunately, plants and trees, which I'm all in favor of planting more, take in CO2 and give off oxygen. It's the cycle of life. <clears throat> so there's nothing wrong with CO2. So when you free yourself up of the other pollutants that are byproducts of burning fossil fuels, such as particulate matter and carbon and other noxious gases, natural gas is very, very clean energy. The only way to make electricity in a manner even cleaner than that, under current viable technology, is to use nuclear fission energy. Nobody wants nuclear fission energy, at least not the environmentalists. Nuclear energy is sustainable. Nuclear energy is very, very green. The pollution can be um, confined in terms of taking the spent fuel rods and storing them below ground in a Lead lined room where it's not spreading anywhere, it's not getting out into the atmosphere, and the capacity of the reactors can be uh, increased to meet demand. This fanciful notion that we're going to meet all our energy needs in the near future through quote unquote green sources like wind and solar energy is just that. It's a flight of fancy, it's a fantasy. Now maybe, maybe someday when technology progresses to the point where we can find more efficient ways of of harnessing those energy sources, it may be possible. Under current technology and in the foreseeable future, it is not possible. That is why they're having these brownouts out in California, because they rely too much on wind to power their electrical grid and they can't meet the demand. Wind is not consistent. Wind is not predictable. Wind cannot be increased at will in order to meet increased demand. Ditto for the sun. The sun is not predictable to a certain degree. You could predict you're going to get a certain number of sunshine days, but it's not guaranteed. You don't know necessarily when it's going to happen. It doesn't shine at night. And... You can't make it shine any brighter if you need more energy. And the biggest problem with solar energy is that we don't have a solar cell efficient enough to convert the energy. In other words, people talk about electric cars. If you took your car, for instance, and made the entire surface, the exterior surface of the car out of a solar material, a material that would gather energy like a solar panel, it could not get that car moving. It would probably have to sit there for God knows how many days just to charge the battery up if it could be charged up. But the notion that it could ever sustain the car in real time, see, that's real viable solar energy. When you have a solar panel that's efficient enough to grab the radiation from the sun and turn it into electricity at a level capable of meeting real-time demand, where the only reason you'd need to store it is so that you could use the vehicle at night when the sun isn't shining. Well, then you've had something. But we don't have that now. And we're nowhere near that. The cost of charging these electrical vehicles is astronomical. The disposal cost is astronomical. And when you talk about things like wind, everybody talks about wind being cheaper because they give you a half a story. They talk about once everything's up and running what the cost of producing energy by wind. They don't tell you what the initial investment is. They don't factor that in. And they don't tell you about the extraordinarily high maintenance cost of wind farms, replacing those turbines and the short service life of many of the components. When you factor in all of the costs, you'll see why fossil fuels predominate because they're the cheapest way to make energy right now. Now, I'm all in favor of exploring alternative energy sources, but what I've tried to tell people for years, and I'm saying it again, is that economically viable alternative energy sources don't need subsidies to succeed. They succeed because they're economically viable. If they require subsidies in order to get people to adopt them, they're not Economically viable. That is my loyal bodyguard in the background. So, given the technological shortcomings of green energy and its ability to meet demand, given the long-term environmental impact of many of these things in green energy, given how much reduction we've been able to make in greenhouse uh, greenhouse gases without having to resort to green energy by, by using primarily natural gas, a, f- a clean fossil fuel. And given the difficulty we're going to have to try and overcome this technological gap, why this big push for green energy? Because you have a fanatical group uh, of, of greens that have been infiltrated by leftists that are trying to do nothing more then eliminate the competitive advantage of the United States of America. We are living up to obligations that other nations are flouting. China is not going to live up to any of these obligations, so they're going to continue to progress and have their economic power grow unabated and uninhibited and unrestricted by this um, honor system uh, of restriction that we assigned to ourselves. So this is folly. And to prove this to you, to give you a little more evidence of this, look at the opposition on the left itself. This article just came to my attention about how green mining is meeting resistance from environmentalists. Now, as you know, that at the current time, the Democrats control both houses of Congress. Now, The Senate is lining up all of its party line votes to pass this Inflation Reduction Act. Now, this is just nothing but a pork bill. It's not going to reduce inflation. But it has $369 billion. I love the way they throw these numbers out, as if we have an unlimited supply of money. The government doesn't produce anything. The government doesn't make money. All they can do is extend credit and print money. Their only source of money is taxing us. The economy is in the tank. People haven't gotten real-world wage increases in God knows how long because of this, uh, or at least since Biden's been around. Nobody's, nobody's wages are growing. The only people whose wages are growing or are getting paid or haven't felt the squeeze as a result of these COVID nonsense is other government employees. They don't contribute anything to the tax base because most of their salary goes towards consuming the tax base. So the, the average private sector worker, he's getting it royally. So $369 billion in new federal spending for wind, solar, and electric vehicles. I just explained to you why this is folly. So why are we spending all this money? How is this going to enhance the Inflation Reduction Act? They would have been better off spending this $369 billion in building new natural gas-fired power plants. Can't do that because the environmentalists are fighting you every step of the way. Now, if they passed this bill, uh, it would be hailed as a victory, of course, for advocates of renewable energy. But as is the case with all energy economics, uh, everything comes at a cost. An enormous expansion of mining projects would be needed to extract the raw materials that are needed to produce solar panels, wind turbines, and electric batteries. Most people that are green, don't like these mining uh, operations that have to take place in order to produce this. So they want their cake and they want to eat it too. The Biden administration is supposedly split on the issue. Uh, On the one hand, they're attempting to reduce dependence on foreign countries for essential raw materials of this Green New Deal, while on the other hand, blocking permits and approvals that allow American mining companies to dig. So they want it, but they don't want it. So you already have this sort of conundrum here. So even assuming you got people to shift to electric cars and all this silly nonsense, how are we supposed to develop the capacity to produce the electricity to charge and power all these devices? I've already told you that wind and solar can't do it. Not any time in the foreseeable future. You have environmental groups opposing the establishment of any uh, non-green or non-wind or solar power generation process. You can't build a damn power plant here, even if it's fired from natural gas. Hell, if it's fired from nuclear, they'll look at you like you're a fiend. So this is a canard. This is a pipe dream. It can't take place, at least not probably in my lifetime, unless I live to be a very, very ripe old age, which I don't think is in the cards. So all of these things should tell you That you can't do it. It just cannot, cannot, for practical reasons, be done. Now, in terms of the opposition you're going to get from the left, listen to these numbers that I've pulled from this article. A huge increase in mining would have to take place in the shift to a clean energy system. A typical electric car requires six times the mineral inputs of a conventional car. An onshore wind plant requires nine times more mineral resources than a gas fired plant. They also project that in order to meet current green energy targets, the demand for lithium, which is a primary component of batteries, as you know, will grow by 40 fold, 40 times by 2040. The demand for graphite, cobalt, and nickel will grow by 20 to 25 times. Demand for rare earth elements will grow three to seven times. And the demand for copper will double. The World Bank report on minerals for climate action states that 17 minerals are essential to realize green energy goals, including aluminum, copper. Silver, indium, selenium, tellurium, photovoltaic uh, cells, steel, copper, aluminum, zinc, lead, uh, graphite, lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese, and vanadium, uh, vanadium. Sorry, vanadium for batteries. All these things. Who's going to let us mine all these things in this country? And if they don't allow us to mine us in this country, then again, we're back to the same problem. We're dependent on foreign sources. And if our whole energy uh, grid is dependent on resources from foreign countries who could cut them off at any given time, our national security is affected. So this whole energy issue is huge, and it has far-reaching implications, not only from an economic standpoint, but from a national security standpoint. And for those young kids who are so hooked up into that word sustainability, you look at these numbers and you'll see that this isn't all that sustainable. We probably could do a lot better with natural gas and be more sustainable with that or using clean coal technology or anything else than than any of these things here that they're talking about. There's going to be tremendous opposition to this mining. This is going to be a, a massive Increase in mining. Every strip of land in this country that isn't already used for for farms, and maybe some that are used for farms, are going to be strip mined and ripped up. It's going to be incredible. You can't do it. You can't do it. So when people talk about green energy, it isn't very green, except for the amount of money that people are making by playing politics with it. And as I said, the Biden administration is playing politics. They say a solution they're proposing is to bring mining operations into the United States, where stricter environmental and human rights standards apply. And many experts believe that much of the demand for these materials can be met domestically. But politics is the main constraint. I already told you before that the Biden administration is blocking permits and approvals that allow American mining companies to dig. And likewise, this same thing would happen here. Uh, Ian Lang, a professor of economics, says the United States uh, can supply a large percentage of its needs for things like EVs or grid storage batteries. We have a number of lithium deposits here in the United States. Our capital markets are pretty good at moving investment towards things that we think are going to be profitable. But most of the lithium projects under discussion right now are being held up by the National Environmental Policy Act. So on one hand, they say they're for it. On the other hand, they're not. Any way you slice it, it comes down to a non-starter. It can't be done. So I really wanted to hit this today to explain a little bit more in detail of how important energy is to an economy, how important energy is to our national security, and the nexus or connection between both. There was nothing better for our economy or our national security than the energy independence that we enjoyed under Donald Trump. Now, I'm going to leave you with one thought, because every time I get into a discussion or mention these things and mention Donald Trump, I always hear about his tweets, about he's flawed, he's this, he's that. Well, I've got news for you. There's an old saying that people who don't study history are destined to repeat it. You will repeat maybe successes, but more than likely you will repeat historical mistakes. Throughout our history, there have been people whose lives, whose existence, whose accomplishments, whose actions have been indispensable to the safety and the preservation of mankind, that have been indispensable to the safety and preservation and continued success of the United States of America. And I can assure you that with the exception of Jesus Christ, none of them were a perfect individual. Looking for perfection in a leader is not what you look for. Joe Biden is far from perfect. He is as flawed as they come, His son is a crackhead. The man has dementia, and he tells you that his son is the finest man he ever knew. He's flawed. He's corrupt. Donald Trump had no filter. Donald Trump spoke his mind. But I thought that was refreshing that a politician actually told you what he was thinking, actually told you the truth, instead of telling you what he thought you wanted to hear. Lincoln was a flawed man. He saved the United States. Washington was not perfect. He was the father of our country. Ben Franklin, by all accounts, was a degenerate in his personal life, but a brilliant man and responsible for many of the negotiations we had during the formation of this country with France and other allies who helped us. Ulysses S. Grant was a smoking, drinking man who was never successful in business, but was the winningest damn general the Union Army had and saved the Union. And was successful in abolishing slavery. Imperfect people have played pivotal roles in this country's history. Patton was a flawed man. What would we have done without his third army marching across Europe or when he commanded first army in Italy? MacArthur was an imperfect man. What would we have done without him in the Philippines? and the Pacific during World War II and his brilliant administration and establishment of the government of Japan. We don't look for perfection, ladies and gentlemen. We look for what all these men had in common. They were men for the times, and now that we're in a more enlightened era where women are taking their place in the lexicon of government service, I'll expand it to say We're not looking for perfect people, we're looking for people for the times. Donald Trump may not be perfect, but Donald Trump is a man for the times. He is the only man that is unafraid to speak his mind and unafraid to defend this country, politically and militarily if necessary. So don't buy into the BS from the Republican National Committee who's trying to remove this man because he's a threat not only to the Democrats, but he's a threat to the swamp that they also inhabit, populate, and encourage. That's why none of them ever point the fingers at the Democrats, because they're doing the same thing. Maybe not to the same degree. Maybe not with the same uh, degree of, of brash and out in the open, we don't care attitude. You see that in the trial now of Nancy Pelosi's husband in the in the 11th hour, they've changed the judge to have someone who is sympathetic and has donated to a democratic causes in the past. I mean, it's so out in the open, it's not even funny. So will anybody tell you any different? Donald Trump is the man we need in 2024. Any candidate that he backs is the candidate that you should vote for. And if we're going to save this country, we're going to need him back. There's going to be a time for Ron DeSantis, but it's not 2024. Let it be 2028 when Trump finishes his second term. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.